appeals court affirms Pendleton's conviction. Boone Forks Region Webster County Nature Center receives $300,000 grant. Yes, $300,000. Actor with local ties to visit Iowa Central. That'd be Nicholas Kurtz. Along with FDFD switches to new recruit testing system. Yes, these stories and more on this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Hope you're having a great start to your day, everyone, as it is Friday morning if you're hearing this on the air here on the IRIS Network. This is Andrew Howe filling in for this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. Before we get into those headlines, though, let's take a check of your forecast for Fort Dodge and the near northwest Iowa area. Well, you can expect for today, your Friday, mostly cloudy conditions and gradually becoming sunny with a high near 23 degrees. Wind chill values as low as zero. North-northwest wind up to 9 miles per hour becoming calm in the afternoon. For tonight, expect mostly clear conditions with a low around 16 degrees. Wind chill values as low as 5 above. Light south wind increasing to 10 miles per hour in the evening. For your Saturday, expect mostly sunny skies with a high near 40 degrees. Winds from the south gusting as high as 24 miles per hour. Saturday night, expect mostly cloudy conditions, a low around 30. And for your Sunday, expect partly sunny skies with a high near 44 degrees. As we are taking a look here at some of your headlines. Again, for today, though, a high of 23 degrees with decreasing clouds for your Friday. We're going to start off now with this story about Joshua Pendleton and his conviction regarding a murder that happened in 2019. Appeals Court affirms Pendleton's conviction. This by Kelby Winger. An appeals court has affirmed Joshua Pendleton's convictions for the murder and robbery of the Reverend Al Henderson of Fort Dodge. In a 16-page ruling filed on Wednesday, the Iowa Court of Appeals found that Pendleton's rights were not violated when a district court judge declined to suppress some statements he made to investigators prior to and following his arrest, and that there was sufficient evidence to support both theories of first-degree murder that the prosecution presented to the jury. The oral arguments for Pendleton's appeal were presented to the appeals court on December the 6th. Pendleton was convicted in April 2021 of the October 2019 murder of Henderson outside of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Fort Dodge, Iowa. He was charged with first-degree murder and first-degree robbery for the theft of Henderson's cell phone during the fatal assault. Prior to that, Pendleton's defense motioned to suppress all statements the defendant made to law enforcement the day of the offense and arrest. Following a hearing, then-District Court Judge Gina Bodding ruled that most of the statements Pendleton made to officers were admissible, except for comments he made to then-Detective Larry Hedlund prior to signing a waiver of his Miranda rights. On appeal, Pendleton argued that his Miranda waiver was involuntary because he didn't have he was having hallucinations due to untreated schizophrenia. What's not clear-cut is the effect of Pendleton's schizophrenia on his ability to waive Miranda and answer the detective's questions, appeals court judge Mary Tabor wrote in the court's opinion. The ruling notes that while Pendleton had been acting oddly that night, including talking in a Russian accent, he remained calm and cooperative with authorities and pointed out a logical inconsistency in the Miranda waiver. Even if he were experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia, Pendleton's demeanor and discussion showed he understood his Miranda rights and made a voluntary waiver, Tabor wrote. 
During the interview with Hedlund after Pendleton invoked his right to counsel, Hedlund asked if he could take a photo of the defendant's hands. Pendleton initially agreed, but then changed his mind and said he wanted to wait for a lawyer. This exchange shows Pendleton understood his rights and knew how to invoke them, bolstering the influence that he knowingly and voluntarily waived them earlier, Tabor wrote. Also in his appeal, Pendleton challenged a state law which was enacted in 2019 and disallows an appellate court to reverse a general verdict on the basis of a defective or insufficient theory if one or more of the theories presented dot, 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 is sufficient to sustain the verdict on at least one count. Pendleton had also been charged with first-degree robbery for theft of Henderson's cell phone. His defense and later appellate attorneys argued that he didn't take the phone with the intent to deprive Henderson of the property and that Pendleton was delusional at the time of the attack and believed it was evidence of a crime. At trial, the jury was instructed to find Pendleton guilty of first-degree murder if it found that he either acted willfully, deliberately, premeditatedly, and with a specific intent to kill, or was participating in the offense of robbery in the first or second degree. The jury returned with a general guilty verdict without specifying which theory, premeditation, or during the commission of a robbery the verdict was based on. Pendleton argued that there was not enough evidence to support the robbery conviction, and because of that, there was insufficient evidence to support the forcible felony alternative of first-degree murder. The return of a general verdict, he argued, meant that the jury did not identify which theory alternative it leaned on for its decision. Pendleton argued that particular state law is unconstitutional because he believes it violates the separation of powers, due process, and equal protection. But we need not reach those arguments because both alternatives are supported by the record, Tabor wrote. We find no grounds to suppress the challenge statements, Tabor wrote, affirming the convictions. And substantial evidence supports both the robbery verdict and the felony murder theory for first-degree murder. Pendleton is serving a life sentence in the Iowa Department of Corrections. In our front-page news, Boone Forks Region Webster County Nature Center received $300,000 grant. This written by, written by Kelby Wingert. The Boone Forks region, an Iowa great place that includes Webster, Hamilton, and Boone counties, was recently awarded a $300,000 grant from the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs. The Boone Forks region was originally designated an Iowa great place in 2010, recognizing Webster and Hamilton counties for their rich natural resources and outdoor recreational opportunities. In 2019, the region was redesignated an Iowa great place and was expanded to include Boone County. The mission of the Boone Forks Regional Plan is to collaborate across political and geographic boundaries for effective connection and integration of arts, heritage, nature, community, and economic vitality. Matt Cosgrove, director of Webster County Conservation, told The Messenger in 2019. A portion of the grant, about $58,000, will go towards an interpretive signage project on the water trails in the three counties, Cosgrove said. The Interpretive Signs Project, partnered with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, will place new signs at the water trail access sites in the region, as well as other major recreational and tourism areas. The Interpretive Signs talk about the history, geology, and cultural assets up and down the river corridors in the region, Cosgrove said. 
The remaining grant funds will be used for the indoor exhibits at the River's Edge Discovery Center, currently under construction along the Des Moines River in Fort Dodge, Cosgrove said. The total cost for the exhibits is about $1.6 million, he said, so this grant will help fund a portion of that project. The exhibits are all water-themed, Cosgrove said. The entire building will be focused on Iowa's water resources, so the exhibits will cover the water cycle, wetlands, glaciers, and rivers and streams. There's a lot of people that are involved in this regional effort, Cosgrove said, of the Boone Forks region. It's the counties, the cities, the state, private entities, Iowa Central Community College, the Growth Alliance. There's a lot of different partners throughout the region that have been a part of this project over the last 10 years, and this is a nice feather in the cap for the work that the group has collectively put together. In all, the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs awarded just over $1.5 million in grants. Across Iowa, these projects are connecting Iowans to arts, culture, and heritage programming and their local community's authentic character. Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs Director Chris Kramer said they represent the quality of life people value today when choosing culturally vibrant places to live, work, and raise their families. Actor with local ties to visit Iowa Central is our next front page story. Nicholas Kurtz, a Storm Lake native in Iowa Central Community College graduate who is now a veteran actor based in Los Angeles, will be speaking to ICCC theater students on Friday. Kurtz, who graduated from Storm Lake High School in 2004, was a fall play participant under the direction of Teresa Jackson in 2005. Kurtz then attended the University of Iowa before moving to California to pursue an acting career more than a decade ago. Kurtz will be speaking to three classes at the Bioscience and Health Sciences Building Auditorium on the Iowa Central campus between 8 and 11.30 a.m. on Friday. That's today. These sessions are also open to the public. Kurtz is best known for his roles in the movies The Sack Fly from 2015 and Never Forgotten of 2022. He also worked on the television series Animal Planet Presents in 2013 and has appeared in seven nationally aired TV commercials. Kurtz currently serves as the Director of Athletic Facilities and Events at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. Our next front page story. Fort Dodge Fire Department switches to new recruit testing system. Potential firefighters will have more options for required exams. It's written by Bill Shea. Many businesses throughout the region are looking for workers and are having a tough time doing so. Recruiting new employees isn't any easier for the Fort Dodge Fire Department. To help ease that process, the department has joined a multi-city group offering a civil service exam for entry-level firefighters. The new system will offer anyone interested in becoming a firefighter multiple options for taking the required written and physical agility tests. We're trying to remove all the barriers to an applicant to come and apply, said Assistant Fire Chief Matt Price. He added that no one has to have any firefighting or emergency medical service training to take the tests. The opportunity is wide open to anyone that is interested, he said. The organization... The department has joined is called the Central Iowa Fire and Emergency Medical Service Testing Consortium. Other member cities include Ankeny, Indianola, Knoxville, and Newton, among others. All of those communities will accept the same written physical agility tests. According to Price, using the consortium will reduce demands on the city to administer testing while at the same time expanding the pool of candidates for the firefighter positions. The written test is actually done on a computer and can be completed at Iowa Central Community College or Des Moines Area Community College. Price said people can schedule that written exam 
for a time that is convenient for them. Candidates will have a couple of options for taking their physical agility test. The fire department will conduct a physical agility test in Fort Dodge whenever it makes a firefighter job announcement. It will also accept the results of a physical agility testing done by the consortium. Those who pass the written physical agility test will have an interview with the, at the fire department. Those who successfully complete all the tests and the interviews will be placed on the entry-level firefighter civil service list and will be eligible to be hired. Price said the city has just posted a firefighter job announcement and is beginning its first hiring effort with a new system. He said the goal is to have a list of eligible candidates by March. He said there is one vacancy in the department right now. Our final front page story. Fort Dodge Airport evades computer-caused chaos. A story by Bill Shea. The computer malfunction that forced the cancellation of thousands of flights across the country Wednesday had little impact on Fort Dodge Regional Airport. The morning arrival of a United Express flight from Chicago O'Hare was 12 to 15 minutes late, according to Rhonda Chambers, the local airport's director of aviation. She said passengers and bags were loaded, and that plane took off on time for a return trip to Chicago. Chambers said she is not entirely sure how the Fort Dodge Airport escaped the chaos created by the computer failure. She said her theory is that United Express had a plane available in Chicago and sent it to Fort Dodge as soon as flights could resume late Wednesday morning. Computer breakdown sows chaos across U.S. air travel system. This a story from the AP is part of this article, Dateline, New York. Thousands of flights across the U.S. were canceled or delayed Wednesday after a system that offers safety information to pilots failed, and the government launched an investigation into the breakdown, which grounded some planes for hours. The Federal Aviation Administration said preliminary indications traced the outage to a damaged database file. The agency said it would take steps to avoid another similar disruption. The breakdown showed how much American air travel depends on the computer system that generates alerts called NOTAMS, or N-O-T-A-M-S, or Notice to Air Missions. Before a plane takes off, pilots and airline dispatchers must review the notices, which include details about bad weather, runway closures, or other temporary factors that could affect the flight. The system was once telephone-based, but moved online years ago. The system broke down late Tuesday and was not fixed until mid-morning Wednesday. The FAA took the rare step of preventing any planes from taking off for a time, and the cascading chaos led to more than 1,300 flight cancellations and 9,000 delays by early evening on east, the East Coast, according to flight tracking website FlightAware. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg told a news conference that the problems led to a ground stop because of the way safety information was moving through the system. After the failures were fixed, he warned that travelers could continue to see some effects rippling through the system. Buttigieg said his agency would now try to learn why the system went down. Longtime aviation insiders could not recall an outage of such magnitude caused by a technology failure. Some compared it to, in scope to the nationwide shutdown of airspace after the 2001 terrorist attacks. Periodically, there have been local issues here or there, but this is pretty significant historically, said Tim Campbell, a former senior vice president of air operations at American Airlines and now a consultant in Minneapolis. Campbell said there has been long been concern about the FAA's technology, not just the NOTAM system. Many of those systems are quote-unquote, are old mainframe systems that uh, generally are generally reliable but are out of date, he said. 
John Cox, a former airline pilot and aviation safety expert, said the aviation industry has talked for years about trying to modernize the NOTAM system, but he did not know the age of the servers that the FAA uses. I've been flying 53 years. I've never heard the system go down like this, Cox said. Something unusual happened. According to FAA advisories, the NOTAM system failed at 8.28 p.m. Tuesday, preventing new and amended notices from being distributed to pilots. The FAA resorted to a telephone hotline to keep departures flying overnight, but as air traffic picked up in the morning, the phone system was overwhelmed. Joe Biden said that he was briefed by Buttigieg. And that's our final front page story. Moving on now to news from page two in the paper. Fort Dodge Messenger, as we're reading it here, if you're listening on the air, it's Friday morning. Feenstra names to way, name to Ways and Means Committee. U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra, Republican of Hull, was named to the House Ways and Means Committee. That committee is responsible for tax legislation. It is a powerful panel because under the Constitution, all tax bills must originate in the House of Representatives. I am humbled to be selected to serve on the House Ways and Means Committee for the 118th Congress to continue my work serving and delivering for Iowa, Feenstra said in a written statement. From agriculture and trade matters to health care and tax policy, Ways and Means covers a wide array of legislative priorities important to our agricultural community and rural way of life. Feenstra represents Webster County and all of its surrounding counties. And this is the Thursday edition. January the 12th is brought to you here early Friday morning. On January 12th, down in history, it is the 12th day of 2023. There are 353 days left in the year. If you're hearing this in the morning, there's 352 left now. On January 12th, 1959, Barry Gordon Jr. founded Motown Records, originally Tamla Records, in Detroit. On January 12th, in 1915, the U.S. House of Representatives rejected 204-147, a proposed constitutional amendment to give women nationwide the right to vote. In 1932, Hattie W. Carraway became the first woman elected to the U.S. Senate after be initially being appointed to serve out the remainder of the term of her late husband, Thaddeus. In 1945, during World War II, Soviet forces began a major successful offensive against the Germans in the Eastern Europe. In 1966, President Lyndon B. Johnson said in his State of the Union address that the U.S. military should stay in Vietnam until communist aggression there was stopped. The TV series Batman, starring Adam West and Burt Ward as the dynamic duo, premiered on ABC. And we have the messenger poll as well. This week's question is, were you impacted by air travel problems during the holidays? And you can vote at www.messengernews.net. The messenger is updated, the, the poll is updated weekly. Answers and new questions will be published on Saturdays. From the In Brief section, GOP opens long-promised investigation into Biden family. Here we go, Dateline, Washington. House Republicans on Wednesday opened their long-promised investigation into Joe Biden and his family, wielding the power of their new majority to demand information from the Treasury Department and former Twitter executives as they laid the groundwork for public hearings. Now the Democrats no longer have one-party rule in Washington. Oversight and accountability are coming, says Representative James Comer, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, in a statement. 
the Republican-led committee sent a series of letters requesting financial information from the Treasury Department about financial transactions by members of the Biden family that were flagged as suspicious activity. Those reports are routine, with larger financial transactions automatically flagged to the government and are not evidence on on their own misconduct. Lawmakers also requested testimony from multiple former Twitter executives who were involved in the company's handling of an October 2020 story from the New York Post about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. Republicans say that story was suppressed for political reasons. Moving quickly after taking control of the White House, Republicans are setting up a messy, politically explosive shutdown with the White House that could delve deeply into the affairs of the Biden family and shape the contours of the 2024 race for the White House. In other brief news, Judge tells Detroit Museum, don't move Van Gogh painting, Dateline Detroit, Michigan. A judge on Wednesday ordered a Detroit Museum to hold on to an 1888 painting by Vincent Van Gogh in response to a lawsuit by its owner, who claims it has been missing for nearly six years. The painting, titled The Novel Reader, or The Reading Lady, is part of a rare Van Gogh exhibit, which ends January 22nd at the Detroit Institute of Arts. Broker Art E. Capital Partners LLC is its sole proprietor. Gustavo Soter of Brazil acquired the painting in 2017 for $3.7 million, but a third party took possession of the art, according to the lawsuit. Plaintiff has not known the location of the painting, the lawsuit states. Recently, however, plaintiff learned that the painting is in the DIA's possession on display as part of the museum's Van Gogh in America exhibition. The lawsuit seeks to have the painting turned over to the owner. U.S. District Judge George Karam Stee, that last name is spelled S-T-E-E-H, barred the museum from moving it, a temporary step before a court hearing on January 19th. Moving on now to page 4. AIDS squirts glue into residents' eye at troubled Gowrie Care Facility. This is written by Clark Kaufman at the Iowa Capital Dispatch. An Iowa nursing home with a history of serious regulatory violations may be facing federal penalties for squirting fingernail glue into a resident's eye. According to state inspectors, a male resident of the Aspire Gowrie facility in Webster County approached a nurse aide in the d- dining room of the home during the evening of November 11, 2022. The man handed the aide a small bottle he had picked up from his bedside table and asked the aide to help him with his eye drops. Without first confirming the contents of the bottle, the aide began to administer the fluid from the bottle to the resident's right eye. The resident immediately complained of pain and burning, at which point the aide looked at the bottle and saw that she placed fingernail glue into the man's eye. A team of emergency medical technicians was summoned to the home and flushed the resident's eye for at least 25 minutes, at which point the man's eyelids broke apart, inspectors reported. In the meantime, the nurse aide who had mistakenly put the glue into the resident's eye left the facility because her shift had ended. According to inspectors, she was overheard talking on the phone as she left the building saying, you wouldn't believe what just happened. The man was treated for pain and vision-related issues over the course of the next two weeks. State inspectors noted that according to the facility's own policies, only a licensed nurse should have administered medications and that the man had not been prescribed any eye drops. Boyd sure hurt when the fingernail glue was placed into my right eye, the man later told state inspectors. 
He reportedly stated that while his doctor had assured him that his eye wouldn't bother him forever, he continued to have blurry vision. He told inspectors he had no idea why there was fingernail glue on his bedside table, but added that he felt sure one of the workers must have left it there. The Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals cited the home for 15 state and federal regulatory violations, including failure to meet professional standards, failure to offer activities to meet residents' needs, failure to employ competent nursing staff, failure to prevent significant medication errors, inadequate inf- infection control, and inadequate COVID-19 testing and supplies. The DIA fined the facility $5,250 for failing to keep residents safe, then tripled the amount because it was the second serious safety violation during the past 12 months. The fine was then held in suspension so that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services could determine what penalties, if any, to impose. As of Wednesday, CMS had yet to report taking any action against the home. With regard to the COVID-19 issues, an unvaccinated worker told inspectors she was tasked with caring, caring for a COVID-19 or yeah, COVID-positive patient resident, and that she and her colleagues could not find any of the required masks for staff to wear. She called and texted the home's director of nursing, but never received a response. She said, and so she and a colleague wound up caring for the resident without the required mask, placing herself in the residence she subsequently cared for at risk. Two workers at the home subsequently tested positive for COVID-19, according to inspectors. The home was cited for failing to test residents and staff for COVID-19 even after one resident had tested positive. The director of nursing told inspectors that she believed, contrary to federal federal regulations, that one new case of COVID-19 did not constitute an outbreak. Dozens of violations found by inspectors. Over the past 14 months, the spire of Gallery has been cited 67 for 67 state and federal regulatory violations. Just one day before the glue incident, DIA imposed and then suspended a $7,000 fine against the home for resident safety issues. Those violations were related to a bipolar male resident who reportedly made sexual demands and sexual advances on the staff and residents. In June 2022, a nurse saw him touching the breast of a female resident. The facility notified the police, but the female resident's family declined to pursue the matter. Over the next four months, the staff documented numerous additional incidents in which the man demanded sexual favors of others, physically threatened those who rejected his advances, entered the rooms of female residents, and put his hand between a worker's legs. After being admonished, the man just laughed and moved on to another female, inspectors reported. One female resident allegedly told inspectors that the man was sexually aggressive, that if he could get to you, he would. Another female resident reportedly told inspectors she was concerned the man would come into her room and that she would not be able to get away from him. A third resident allegedly stated that the man had touched workers and residents so many times it was hard to remember every instance. In November 2021, CMS imposed a $20,000 fine against the home. The fine... Followed findings that uh, related to the home's failure to assess residents for signs or symptoms of COVID-19 after an individual at home, at the home, tested positive for the virus. At least three of the residents who weren't assessed later died of COVID-19. A registered nurse at the home acknowledged not having performed COVID-19 assessment screenings on residents, allegedly telling inspectors it would have taken 24 hours and that she would never get home. 
The home was cited for insufficient nursing staff with inspectors, noting that some residents hadn't received showers for several weeks. Although the home had 22 residents, there were nights when only two people were working. And only one of the two was capable of providing any type of nursing care. The other worker was the home's interim administrator, and she lacked even a nurse's aid certificate. By working the overnight shift outside her normal work hours, the interim administrator was eligible to collect bonus pay, inspectors noted. The home's new administrator, Tara Berenson, said Wednesday that the facility has re-educated the staff and is addressing all of the issues raised by inspectors. Aspire of Gallery currently has CMS's lowest possible rating for overall quality, healthcare inspectors and staffing levels, according to the federal agency's Care Compare website. Zero percent of both staff and residents are reported to be currently up to date on their COVID-19 vaccinations. CMS records indicate the home is a for-profit venture owned by Blackhawk Healthcare, a limited liability corporation, and that Bruce Wertheim of Beacon Health Management in Tampa, Florida, has managerial and operational control of the home. Wertheim could not be reached for comment Wednesday. Aspire of Gallery is part of a chain of several Iowa nursing homes. Earlier this year, CMS imposed at least $289,150 in fines against the Aspire of Primgar Home in O'Brien County, according to DIA. That fine has since been reduced to $99,600, according to state records. Jeff Beck, guitarist who influenced generations, dies at age 78. Dateline, New York. Jeff Beck, a guitar virtuoso who pushed the boundaries of blues, jazz, and rock and roll, influencing generations of shedders, shredders along the way and becoming known as the guitar player's guitar player, has died. He was 78. Beck died Tuesday after suddenly contracting bacterial meningitis, his representatives said in a statement released Wednesday. The location was not immediately known. Jeff was such a nice person and an outstanding, iconic, genius guitar player. There will never be another Jeff Beck. That says Tony Iommi, guitarist for Black Sabbath, on Twitter. Beck first came to prominence as a member of the Yardbirds and then went out on his own in a solo career that incorporated hard rock, jazz, funky blues, and even opera. He was known for his improvising, love of harmonics, and whammy bar on his preferred guitar, the Fender Stratocaster. Jeff Beck is the best guitar player on the planet, said Joe Perry, the lead guitarist of Aerosmith, to the New York Times in 2010. He has head, hands, and feet above all the rest of us with the kind of talent that appears only once every generation or two. And we are just past the halfway point here in this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is the Thursday, January 12th edition. is brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for, for the Blind and Print Disabled. All programs heard on IRIS are for the use of our audience. This is your reader filling in. My name is Andrew Halp. Let's take a check now of those obituaries here. On page 4. The first were Robert Bud McCarville, Robert Francis Bud McCarville, age 98, of Fort Dodge and formerly of Moreland, died Tuesday, January 10th, 2023, at the Marion Home. Funeral services will be held on Saturday, January 14th at 10.30 a.m. at Our Lady of Good Council Church in Moreland. Burial will follow at Our Lady of Good Council Cemetery in Moreland with military rites by the VFW Post 1856 and the U.S. Army Honor Guard. 
Visitation will be on Friday from 4 to 7 p.m. at Holy Trinity Church in Fort Dodge with the Rosary at 3.45 p.m. in the church. But is survived by his children, Dr. Maureen McCarville, married to Tom Gardner of Escanaba, Michigan. Dr. Kevin McCarville, married to Becky of Cedar Rapids. Timothy McCarville of Reno, Nevada. Keith McCarville, married to Cindy of Santee, California. Mary Ellen Trainer, married to Todd of Egan, Minnesota. Dr. Beth McCarville, married to Maddie Dolan of Cordoba, Tennessee. Peggy Conlon, married to Pat of Urbandale. Carol Eady, married to Eric of Ames. 25 grandchildren, 27 great-grandchildren, two great-great-grandchildren, sister Mary Catherine Condon of Kansas City, and Francis Ann Philippi of Omaha, Nebraska. Numerous nieces, nephews, and cousins. He was preceded in death by his parents, Francis and Catherine, maiden name Cody McCarville, wife Mary Claire in 2017, infant son John, daughter-in-law Laura Schlegel, brothers Dr. John, Bernard, Stephen, Thomas, and Danny. Robert Francis Bud McCarville was born on December 7, 1924 in Fort Dodge. He was raised and educated in Moreland, graduating from Moreland High School in 1943. From 1944 to 1946, Bud served in the U.S. Army, serving in the South Pacific and the Philippines during World War II. Upon receiving his honorable discharge, Bud attended junior college in Fort Dodge and continued his education at Creighton University. On September 3, 1949, Bud was united in marriage to Mary Claire Coleman in St. Matthew's Church at Clare. In 1951, Bud graduated from Creighton University and the couple established their home in Moreland. For 40 years, Bud was a rural mail carrier until retiring in 1990. He was a member of Holy Trinity Parish, Knights of Columbus, Rural Mail Carriers Association, and a proud supporter of his community in the St. Edmund Gales. The family would like to express their sincere gratitude to the Marion home staff, especially Danny Noble, for their wonderful care of Bud the past few years. The Lawfers Weiler Funeral Home is serving the family. Memorials may be left to the Mary McCarville Family Tuition Fund or to the Bud and Mary McCarville Campus Ministry Fund at St. Edmund Schools. Our next obituary is for Lois Shrek of Urbandale. Lois Ann Shrek, age 88, passed away Tuesday, January 10th, 2023 at Eden Crest at Beaverdale in Des Moines. Funeral services will be held at 2 p.m. Monday, January 16th at Isles Westover Chapel, where a visitation will be held one hour prior to the service. Burial will follow in the McDivitt Grove Cemetery in Urbandale. Lois was born December 9, 1934 in Wall Lake, Iowa, to Carl and Lena Ortner-Stork. She married Robert Schreck on October 15, 1955, and they made their home in Urbandale, where they raised their four children. Lois worked in the catalog department at Sears for 28 years, retiring in 1998. Lois was a member of St. Pius X Catholic Church. She enjoyed crocheting, knitting, and bingo. Her greatest joy was spending time with her family. Lois is survived by her two sons, Doug married to Diane Schreck of Des Moines, and Dave married to Cindy Schreck of Bellevue, Nebraska. Her son-in-law, Mike Osterberg of Fort Dodge, Iowa, Sister, Marion Otto, brother Mark, married to Alice Stork. Six grandchildren, Shane Shrek, Jake Shrek, Summer Horn, Davina Shrek, Paige Grant, and Cole Osterberg. Four great-grandchildren, Heaven Benjamin, James Cunyon, Donovan Cunyon, and Gunnar Shrek. And her great-great-grandchild, Scarlett Benjamin. She was preceded in death by her parents, 
husband, Robert F. Schreck, sister, Jean Pudence, son, Dwight Schreck, daughter, Robin Osterberg, brothers, Loris Stork and Neil Stork, and her sister, Janice Hoffman. Memorial contributions may be made to the St. Pius X Church. Online condolences will be welcomed at islescares.com. There we go to Dorothy Turnquist of Sioux Rapids. Dorothy Agnes Turnquist, aged 92, of Sioux Rapids, Iowa, died January 10, 2023, at the Pleasant View Home in Albert City, Iowa. Funeral services will be held Saturday, January 14, 2023, at 11 a.m. at the First United Church in Sioux Rapids, Iowa. Burial will follow in the Lone Tree Cemetery. Visitation will take place one hour prior to the service at the church. The Slyfert Funeral Home in Sioux Rapids is in charge of arrangements. There we go to Marlon Jr., Ilo Cromwell Jr. of Webster City. A gathering of family and friends is 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 17, 2023 at the historic Bruce Funeral Home. You can look that up at brucefuneralhome.com. And then finally, David Fevold, F-E-V-O-L-D is how that name is spelled of Humboldt. Memorial service for David Fevold, age 86, is 1.30 p.m. Sunday at LifeGate Fellowship of Humboldt with a celebration of life visitation to follow until 5 p.m. You can look that up at Lentz, L-E-N-T-Z, funeralhome.com. We have some announcements here from the uh, Lifers Weiler and Sievers Funeral Home. The death announcement for Cynthia Larson, age 69. Services are pending. Next is for Carol, C-A-R-Y-L, Carol R. Jones, age 87. Services at a later date. Marcus Goley, age 46, visitation Friday, that's today if you're listening to us on the air, at 11 a.m. till 1 p.m. at the Lawfersweiler Funeral Home, Celebration of Life Memorial Service Friday at 1 p.m. at the Funeral Home. We read Robert Francis Bud McCarville, his funeral is Saturday at 10.30, visitation Friday tonight, 4 to 7 p.m. at Holy Trinity Church with a rosary at 3.45, and then Thomas Mike McNally, Age 77, his celebration of life is Monday, 4 to 6 p.m. at the Lawfers Weiler Funeral Home. All right, with that being read and said, we move on now to the sports section. The Jaguar Pipeline. SE Valley legends Fisher and Graves reflect on first season together as Hawks. It's written by Chris Johnson. Dateline, Iowa City. In a school of around 300 students, it would be difficult to find a single Division I football player even as the years, decades, or even generous generations pass. The Southeast Valley community spent the 2022 college season watching two of their very own play together, which culminated in a Music City Bowl championship at the University of Iowa. Kyler Fisher and Aaron Graves' gridiron careers first intertwined with the Jaguars years ago. This past season, the Southeast Valley duo became teammates once again for the Hawkeyes. Fisher is a starter on special teams while also seeing the field as a linebacker. He has one year left with the Hawkeyes. Graves, a heralded defensive lineman recruit, just completed a productive true freshman season at Iowa. The last time they were on the field together, it was Fisher's final year in gallery and Graves' first. Having another guy... From my hometown has been great, Fisher said. Ever since 8th grade when our schools combined, I knew this kid Graves was going to be a beast. It's been awesome to watch him grow over the years. Having him here at Iowa with me is special. Aaron has worked really hard to get where he's at and have that early success. He's only It's only his first season, so he's still got so much more to give. 
that's the best part. Anytime I can help him or any of the younger players, I try to do my part as an upperclassman. Graves appreciates having Fisher by his side during the transition from Class 2A, championship-level football, to the Big Ten. Playing together in high school and now at Iowa, I've been able to talk to him a lot and it helped bridge the gap to Iowa City. Making the adjustment to college football easier, Graves said. My older brothers were in his grade, so they were friends with Kyler and he was there when I started. It's really cool the two guys from a small town in central Iowa are playing in Nashville, Tennessee. For two guys that come from Southeast Valley communities of less than 1,000 people to be on the big stage against an SEC team, it's really incredible when you think about it like that. Playing in his first bowl game was an incredible experience for a rookie. It was a great experience being in the city of Nashville playing in an NFL stadium, Graves said. To win the game was the highlight given we were training and practicing for the last month. Having my family there was really fun. We got there Sunday and my family was there on Tuesday before the Saturday game. It meant a lot of to have them there and be able to hang out. This was the third bowl game for Fisher, who played in the Citrus Bowl a year ago, and it was also at the 2019 Outback Bowl. Both of the prior postseason appearances were in Florida. It's been a lot of fun through the years with different experiences, Fisher said. It was my first time ever being in Nashville, and the Music City did not disappoint. Everyone who was helping us and all the locals were super nice, which made the experience so much better. This bowl game was special because this was the last game for a lot of the guys I came in to Iowa with, including three of my roommates. I've gotten so close and made a lot of good memories with many of them. It's definitely going to be different without them. Fisher was able to spend some time with his family as well. Most of them were there except my youngest brother, who's three years old, and my oldest brother, who has small children at home, Fisher said. I'm sure a lot of parents know that traveling with a babies and toddlers makes for a long trip, so they weren't able to make it. But it was actually the first bowl game that my grandparents were able to make it to, which made the trip even more special to me. Graves said the Hawkeyes entered the bowl game with a chip on their shoulder, given the general portrayal of the squad on social media among talking heads. It definitely played a factor, Graves said. We don't really listen to things on the outside with all the transfer pool stuff. With us, it's just the next guy up. They develop and grow. We had some new guys step up and were a big part of the victory. The win over Kentucky was the 10th bowl victory for head coach Kirk Ferentz, which ties him with Joe Paterno as the most postseason wins by a Big Ten coach. He, Ferentz, is kind of the pinnacle and consistency of coaching, Graves said. He is the same coach every single day, and you're going to get the best from him consistently. He always gives us a chance to win. You give him a month to work and prepare, it's going to be tough to beat him. Graves was just looking to make the travel roster initially. He became a key contributor on the defensive line, appearing in all 12 games. I made a goal to just travel and play a little bit, Graves said. After I saw the field early on, that goal shifted to trying to make plays so we can win more games. In the future, I'm just looking forward to getting better this offseason with my teammates and lifting for next year. Getting bigger, stronger, and better. Graves had five tackles for loss and nine solo tackles from his defensive tackle position. He also recorded 2.5 sacks. Fisher played in all 13 games and tallied five tackles. In other news, Cyclone Ryan flirts with triple-double. Dateline Ames, Iowa. 
Emily Ryan had 14 points, 11 rebounds, and 8 assists to lead four Iowa State players with 14 points, and the 15th-ranked Cyclones beat Kansas State 67-56 on Wednesday night. Danae Fritz completed a three-point play with two minutes and 15 seconds remaining in the third quarter to give Iowa State the first double-digit lead of the game. Ryan scored the opening six points of the fourth quarter on a three-point play and three-pointer, and she added another basket for a 59-46 lead with five minutes and 35 seconds left. Iowa State went nearly three minutes without scoring to have its lead trimmed to 62-56 with two minutes and 32 seconds left, but Ashley Jones answered with a three-pointer from the corner for a nine-point lead. Jones finished with 14 points and nine rebounds. Fritz had 14 points and seven boards, and Lexi Donarski made four three-pointers for Iowa State, 11-3 in the season, 3-1 in the Big 12. Donarski was honored before the game for reaching 1,000 career points. The Cyclones will be without Stephanie Suarez, averaging 14.4 points, 9.9 rebounds, and three blocks per game for the rest of the season after suffering a torn ACL, the team announced on Monday. Jalen Glenn had 17 points, 10 rebounds, and 6 steals for Kansas State. Their record is 12-5 overall, 1-3 in the conference. She was 5 of 10 from the field while the rest of her teammates were combined 15 of 50. The Cyclones returned to action on Sunday at Texas. Hawks dominate Iowa women's basketball. The number 12 Iowa makes quick work of Northwestern. And the headline photo shows Sydney Affolter driving in to score for Iowa against Northwestern on Wednesday night at Carver Hawkeye Arena in Iowa City. Dateline Iowa City, this is an AP story. Caitlin Clark finished a rebound shy of her eighth triple-double, and freshman Hannah Stolke had a career-high 17 points as number 12 Iowa coasted to a 93-64 win over Northwestern on Wednesday night. Clark got her ninth rebound with 7 minutes and 47 seconds to play, but had five assists after that to finish with 14 to go with her 20 points. She also moved into second on the Iowa career scoring list. Monica says... Sinano scored 18 points on 6 of 8 shooting plus 6 of 7 free throws for the Hawkeyes, 13-4 and 5-1 and and in the Big Ten Conference. Stolke, who also had 9 rebounds, was 8 of 11 shooting as Iowa shot 59%, 35 of 59. Clark had 4 of the team's 8 three-pointers. Kaylee Walsh scored 22 points for the Wildcats, 6-10 and in their overall season record, 0-6 in the conference who had lost five straight and are 0-6 against ranked teams. Northwestern shot 36%, 24 of 66, and was out-rebounded 41-29. Clark hit a pair of three-pointers to close the first quarter and give the Hawkeyes a 22-16 lead. A 13-2 run with Stolke scoring six points had the lead at 38-22 in the second quarter. At the break, Clark was one of three players in double figures, and Iowa was shooting 52% for a 47-32 lead. Clark had six assists as the Hawkeyes had 13 helpers and on 16 baskets, and her 14 points moved her past Allie Disterhoff into second in school history with 2,106 points. Iowa plays at Penn State on Saturday. In state basketball, you and I men win again. Dateline Cedar Falls 
Bowen Bourne scored 13 of 23 points after halftime, and Northern Iowa beat Murray State 75 to 67 on Tuesday night. Bourne shot 7 for 14, 2 for 6 from three-point range, and 7 of 10 from the free throw line for the Panthers. 9-8 and eight in their season and 5-2 and two in the Missouri Valley Conference. Logan Wolf shot 5 for 18, including 5 for 7 from beyond the arc to add 15 points. Cole Henry shot 6 of 18 from the field and 2 for 3 from the line to finish with 14 points. Rob Perry finished with 22 points and 6 rebounds for the Racers, who are 9-8 and eight in the season, 4-3 and three in the league. Jamari Smith added 16 points and 7 rebounds for Murray State. Jacoby Wood also recorded 13 points. An 11-0 run of the first half gave Northern Iowa a 4-point lead. The teams entered the break with Northern Iowa ahead 28-27, while Bourne led his club in scoring with 10 points. Northern Iowa used a 21-2 second-half run to erase a 9-point deficit and take the lead 72-62 with 49 seconds remaining. Drake manhandled UIC Dateline Chicago. Tucker DeVries scored 7 of his 15 points in overtime, and Drake defeated UIC 76-71 on Tuesday. DeVries also added 9 rebounds for the Bulldogs with a 13-5 record, 4-3 in the Missouri Valley Conference. Roman Penn added 15 points and 8 assists. Darnell Brody added 14 points. Toby Akani led the Flames 9-9 and 1-6 in their uh, conference and scoring, finishing with 18 points and 2 steals. Jace Carter added 14 points, 8 rebounds, and 3 steals for UIC. In addition, Philip Scobalge finished with 14 points, 6 assists, and 2 steals. Penn scored 7 points in the first half for Drake, who trailed 35-30 at halftime. Drake outscored UIC by 5 points in the second half, and the team's finished regulation tied 61-61. That ends that story. I guess we move on now to the Dodger Corner. This is all buried down here in the sports section. Dateline Ames, Iowa. This by Chris Johnson. Dodgers head back to Ames. The Fort Dodge wrestling team will make a quick turnaround and head back to Ames for an Iowa Alliance Conference duel on Thursday. The fifth-ranked Dodgers, 2-2 two two overall, face the Little Cyclones after placing second in the Jack Mendenhall Invitational last Saturday. This Saturday, the Dodgers head to the Cedar Rapids-Jefferson Tournament. The Dodger girls will also compete against Ames on Thursday before heading to Waukee Northwest on Saturday. On Thursday, the girls' duel will run from will run first at 6 p.m. Junior varsity action and Ames senior night festivities will follow. The boys' duel is slated to start at approximately 8 p.m. State runner-up and second-ranked Coy Davidson, 13-8, is slated to return to the lineup for the Dodgers after recovering from an injury. Davidson's last action was in the Council Bluffs Classic in December. There are some big matchups, said FDSH head coach Bobby Thompson. The four real toss-ups will be heavyweight, 195, 170, and 126. We have a couple of matches we need to turn around. It will be nice to have Koi back in the lineup. Top-ranked Drew Ayla, 19-1, won the 113-pound Mendenhall Championship, while number two, Demarion Ross, 21-2, and, and second-rated Dreshawn Ross, 21-2, were the 160 and 195 pound gold medalist, respectively. Cal Hartman, 
Hartman, 16 and 8, was third at 170, and sixth-rated Max Bishop, 14 and 8, was fourth at 120. The Dodgers and Little Cyclones met four times at the Mendenhall Invite. Drishon Ross earned a 17 to 7 major decision over third-ranked Denari Mickle at 195 pounds, and freshman Caden Fraher pinned Jacob Booth Valley in 3 minutes and 45 seconds at 145 pounds. Ames Cole Martin, 138 pounds, beat Fort Dodge's Bo Cowell, 6-4, and, and Jackson Winky defeated Hartman, 7-3, at 170. Competing at the Jayhawk invite will be third-ranked 1A Alburnett, Boone, Cedar Falls, Cedar Rapids, Jefferson, Clinton, Davenport Central, Davenport North, Forest City, Fort Madison, 5th-ranked Iowa City, City High, Muscatine, Pleasant Valley, Valley, Waterloo, East, and 8th-ranked 3A Waukee Northwest. This is another tournament with 16 teams, Thompson said. Valley, a district opponent, will give us some key matchups, and Auburn it, a high is a high-caliber program. The top-ranked 3A wrestlers in the field are Ayala, 113 pounds, Waukee Northwest, Koufax, Christensen, 120, Pleasant Valley's Caden McDermott, 170, Iowa City High's Gabe Arnold, 182, and Iowa City High's Ben Keeter, 220. Alburnett's Brody Neighbor is ranked number one at 138 pounds. The Dodger girls are coming off of a fifth-place showing on the girls' side at the Mendenhall Invitational. Number one senior Alexis Ross, 24-2, was the 135-pound champ, and Maddie Poulis, 9-4, was second at 155 pounds. Joining the Dodger girls on Saturday will be Ames, Audubon, Bettendorf, Boone, Cedar Falls, Centerville, Dallas Center Grimes, Humboldt, Lewis Central, Missouri Valley, Norwalk, Raccoon River, Northwest, Red Oak, Seidel, Trainer, West Marshall, and Williamsburg. One more wrestling story here. Gale wrestlers hit the road. That's right, Chris Johnson of the MessengerNews.net. The St. Edmund wrestling team. We'll be back on the mat this week with two road trips. The Gales, who are coming off of hosting the St. Edmund Duels, will travel to Clear Lake on Thursday to meet the Lions and Hampton-Dumont. Action will begin at 6 p.m. The Gales went 1-4 at their home tournament, beating the Fort Dodge Junior Varsity 48-24. Ronnie Orris, 120 pounds, and Sam Meyer, 132 pounds, were both perfect at 5 to nothing. Nano Gillian, 160 pounds, and Zach Ross Menneth, 170 pounds, had four wins each. Kinnick Henning, 126 pounds, and Adam Walker, 195, along with Yoon Sang Kim, 152, all recorded three victories each for St. Edmund. Mac Courier is ranked fifth at 132 pounds for the Lions, and Hampton Dumont Cal's Carter Heliskoff is fifth at 285 pounds. On Saturday, the Gales will compete in the AGWSR. Tournament, Belle Plain, Bondurant Farrar, East Buchanan, Mason City, Newman, Northwood, Kensett, Rockford, Southeast Warren, and West Fork round out the field. Connor Tim is ranked 8th at 160 pounds for Belle Plain, and Chase Wickwire is 8th at 182. East Buchanan's Cody Fox is number 1 at 285 pounds. All right, with that being read and said, this has been your reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is the Thursday, January 12th edition. It's brought to you here on the morning of Friday Yes, Friday the 13th, January 13th here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. 
that brings us to the end. We thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing your time with Iris. It's always so great to be here. This is Andrew Haupt with you, filling in. We hope you have a great day and a great weekend. Take it easy and straight ahead.